<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. Coming soon from Dread, Midnight. In Midnight, fear grips South Korea as a serial killer, Squid Game's Wee Ha Joon, stalks its streets when Kyung Mi, a deaf woman, stumbles upon someone bleeding out in a dark alley. She's become witness to one of the killer's brutal crimes. Now Kyung Mi is being ruthlessly hunted down. Will she survive or is she doomed to become his next victim? Directed by Kwon Oh Seong, Midnight hits on demand and Blu-ray April 5th. Check it out. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garrison. This is the fun-sized edition of Postmortem AMA where you can ask me anything. Producer Joe Russo, what kind of questions did we get this week? Oh my gosh, Mick, we got tons of questions so many that once again i could not fit them all into one episode but i promise i promise promise over the next couple of weeks we will get to them but uh, i'm excited i'm excited but first mick i have a big question to just slap you in the face with oh i wonder what that reference could be did you did you watch the oscars <laughs> um i saw the end of the oscars because i went out to the movies i'm not a big Oscar. You're fan. not an Oscar guy. You don't like watching the Oscars, right? Well, I don't believe in the arts as a competitive sport, mm. um, you know, and I don't really feel that they necessarily tend to represent the best of what filmmaking has to offer. Um, mm -hmm. I understand the attraction. I mean, if that was the case, the last duel would have been nominated for some things. But absolutely, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but what I did do instead, although I got home in time for uh, the uh, the revelatory the the, the, moment. the moments well, yeah. well let's let's talk about that and then i want to hear what you did instead the, okay the pretty i mean i mean everyone's going to want to know what we thought about this i mean so so cynthia was watching it and you came home and caught it is that is that uh, kind of what happened just i came home just before it happened but was in the other room and uh, she said come in here you need to see this she was dvring <laughs> it and so, oh, so she backed yes. it up and replayed it for you yeah so, i yeah. mean it was it was really really surreal i mean what we're talking about is obviously the will smith uh chris rock incident yeah. that took place at the oscars and you know unfortunately i think for some of the wonderful movies that were recognized like coda um they've been overshadowed by this kind of celebrity incident that that's basically hijacked the entire news cycle around the show well, it's just so sad and embarrassing, you know, that someone of privilege should feel the need to walk up in front of millions and millions of people watching somebody on live TV, punch him in the face, and then go yeah. back down and, and scream obscenities at him. I mean, yeah, it, it, not, not, not just someone, Mick, the, yes. the best actor of the year. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's 
it's not my place to judge those activities and the like, but it's just, it's really sad that it had to happen in public. It, and in, it is in sad. And look, I mean, people get roasted at the Oscars and at these award shows all the time. It's, it's sucks that he happened to, you know, Chris Rock happened to pick a raw nerve and happened to pick uh, a, a, you know, a medical problem that, that Jada Pinker is that I'm hoping he didn't even know. I'm, I, I can only imagine that he didn't know. And that the writers of the show didn't know, you know, the fact that they didn't know is a little kind of grossly negligent because she has been very public about it to say the um, least. Uh, oh, thank you, Chris. Chris, our uh, engineer confirmed Chris Rock did not know, uh, right. which, you know, like if you didn't know, it's actually it's actually kind of a funny joke. Uh, well, but, but, uh, the you thing know. is, Will Smith was laughing until he caught the glare of yes. his wife. Yes, yes. And then I think he realized he, you know, but I mean, obviously, like you said, with 10 million people watching and a room full of like Hollywood's elites to go up and, and, and do what he did uh, was was wild and and just remarkable uh well for sheer drama it's the only interesting thing i've seen happen at the academy awards in years yeah i mean probably i mean thank thank god for uh this because i feel like it, it kind of erased the moonlight la la land fiasco from a few years ago from people's memories but but uh yeah this will definitely go down as probably the wildest and most bonkers thing to happen at the oscars and then well, the fact as that, the, as this yeah is being discussed on every single podcast that has to do with movies. Let us yeah. move beyond. All right, fine. I just want to say though, uh, if you haven't seen King Richard, the movie that Will Smith won for, uh, it's great. I would even say it slaps. <laughs> Moving on. Oh, oh, ouch. Yeah. What, so what you asked what you... I did. I, yeah, I what, what, and... was the movie you, what was the movie you saw instead, Mick? I went uh, and saw Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is genius it is yes. so good it it made me excited about cinema in ways i haven't felt in a long time it's fresh and bracing and new and original but it comes from the heart it's not just a film students movie although it does so much with the language of cinema but it also connects to your heart it's funny as hell the performances across the board are terrific including a an adult kiwi Juan, who was short round in the second Indiana Jones movie. And, and Data in, 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 Goonies. in Goonies. Yeah, yep. both of which I uh, worked on the uh, making of documentaries for. Mm -hmm. So I interviewed him yeah. as a kid. Yeah. Amy Lee Curtis is unrecognizable in it. It took me a couple of minutes to realize that was her. Me too, and she's so good. So uh, good. Everybody, yeah. and it's great. But yep. Michelle Yeoh is just phenomenal. And yep. it's her movie. She's in every scene. Yep. There are things in here I've never seen in a movie before and I recommend it highly. It's out of its, its mind. It is yes. batshit crazy, uh -huh. but it's brilliant at the same time. Yes, I loved every second of it and I cannot wait to watch it again. Uh, so highly recommended, seal of approval, everything, everywhere, all the time. <laughs> yep. Go see it when it opens wide in a couple of weeks. That's right. Um, so let's get into the questions. That's let's what we're here for. Yes, yes, yeah. that's right. That's right. Not, not, not us yapping, yapping about answering questions. All right. <laughs> Director DeHard asks, what do you think about books on screenwriting? Like say Sid Field's screenplay or Blake Snyder's Save the Cat? To be honest, I've never read one. Um, I 
believe that there's probably a lot you can learn from them, mostly about form, but very few people who've written books on screenplays have been successful screenwriters. And I would venture to state that the early great screenwriters who made Hollywood what it is, made movies what they are, and inspired everybody else for generations afterwards, never took a film class or read a book on screenwriting. Uh, I'm sure they're valid and useful. Um, I have never, re I've read parts of them, uh, and I just feel like you can learn format from them, mm -hmm. but creativity is something you can't learn from a book like that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you can become a better writer. You can write maybe in what people feel is more wanted by the studios, but it seems to me that if you are capable of writing terrific screenplays, you'd be doing that instead of, it, as it would be a much better paying job than writing <laughs> on screenwriting. Well, I don't know, some of those books sell a lot. Yeah, um, well, Sid know, Field obviously has. Well, and, and Blake Snyder's, I would even go yeah. so far as to say that, you know, Blake's, Blake is a produced screenwriter, but by far his most influential work is Save the Cat, his, his book on writing. Yeah. Um, you know, look, I, I think Mick said it right. They're, they're, they're training wheels, right? They can teach you the basics, but at some point you have to fly. And I think you and, and me probably had a, a similar way to come to writing in that we read a lot, um, whether it be novels or screenplays. I, I was a development executive and I was reading two to three screenplays, you know, a day sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's how I learned to write was, was reading other people's screenplays, seeing how they, you know, you know, elicited emotions on the page. And, and when I was growing up in the world of film, you know, I was not exposed at an early age to screenplays. I read books, right. you know, that's I, read I said, novels you and, and that. So, you know, these days, Screenplays are at your fingertips online, mm -hmm. anywhere you Google a screenplay and you can usually find it at least accessible to read. That wasn't the case when I was a beginning screenwriter. I just kind of sat down, I watched movies, I read novels, I saw what the format was, but mm -hmm. really I was starting from scratch. I didn't go to film school. Yep. I took a film class in college that was film appreciation, which doesn't go to it from the nuts and bolts point of view. So it was, it was learning by doing. And yeah. then 20 years of writing uh, led to my finally getting hired to write a screenplay for Amazing Stories. And uh, that changed my life. If you don't want to read novels and watch movies and television series and read screenplays, you don't want to be a screenwriter. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, it's part of the job. It's part of the job. Yeah. So, all right. Nanny asks, Mick and Joe, I'd like to know how aware you are of the final medium you're targeting when you first sit down to write film or television. Do you write the story as it comes to you without thinking about length, structure and format specifics? and then adapt it to the particular format later? Or are you always conscious of it? Well, it depends. Television now isn't necessarily written in acts as it was when it was entirely the purview of network TV, broadcast TV, where everything was for commercial networks and you had to break it down into acts. However, when I'm starting a project, I usually start with an idea. 
I sit down on page one, and if it's a feature length script, I finish at page 110 or whatever it is. And then I go back and tweak. Mm -hmm. um, it, a lot of, uh, of my work is intuitive as a writer. And I think mm -hmm. the more you write, the more you read, the more movies you see, the more your intuition is shaped by experience. Um, so if I have to break it into acts, I'll normally be aware of it during the process, but often I find that if I finish it, if it's a TV movie or a miniseries script for a commercial network, then I will figure out where to put the acts. But they often happen pretty obviously. You know, you you find a cliffhanger that's going to make you want to come back after the Pampers ads. You know, <laughs> totally. Uh, but but broadening it out, I think almost I think what Nanny's actually scratching at is when you sit down to to write not necessarily once you've broken the idea like when you're coming up with the idea do you know if it's like inherently do you know is it film or tv you know like uh, you yes but i'm often wrong you know <laughs> i i recently wrote a feature script called graphic that has not gone out to anybody yet and i wrote it as a two-hour feature mm -hmm. and then because of what television has become uh and and my access to that is greater than it is to features in a lot of ways. Uh, I realized this is a great two-hour feature or two-hour pilot. And so then I broke down 10 story outlines to go with this. And the same thing with another project that, I, uh, that I'm working on right now that we're about to go out pitching with a, a rather well-known um, actor attached. <clears throat> and it was originally a two-hour movie and then I decided no I'm going to make it a one-hour pilot and then beat out 10 episodes from that so I've got in those two cases I thought I was writing features and when I was done with some input from my managers the realization that I probably have a better shot at turning them into a uh, series and partly is because of the state of feature films. You know, mm. there's very, a, a much smaller market for quirky original feature films than there used to be. And you can be quirkier, everything we said about everything, everywhere, all at once, at the same time, um, is contradictory but, but, but to like what I said. A movie like that is few and far between. Right. right. I'm hoping that will mean there will be more of them. In, in success, hopefully, yes. Yeah, wow. well, that theater was packed when I was there, and it was Oscar night. That's great to hear. In L.A. Yeah. Great great to hear for everything, everywhere, all at once. Not so great for the Oscars. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. Oh, well. <laughs> um, oh, well. No, here, here's, I, I agree with you. I think, um, you know, the current marketplace, uh, whether it be because of streaming and the rise of, um, you know, the golden era of, you know, premium television uh there's more flexibility than ever about choosing your narratives but i think you also have to be careful because not every feature length story should be stretched out into a tv series and not Definitely every tv not. series should not be a a you know contained squashed into a feature, into a feature. film feature. no yeah. definitely not and and in this case I created additional sub stories mm. for the episodes and I rejiggered the, the original pilot scripts or feature scripts to become pilot scripts. Yeah. On graphic, it was easier because that was a two hour pilot. 
and on the other project. Um, I'm not saying it because it's based on the work of someone else and I don't want to spill the beans ah. um, until if and when we are proceeding apace. But on that one, uh, it was kind of a challenge, but a fun challenge to turn it into one hour plus nine more episodes. I bet. Yeah. Well, especially when you get to play in a playground like that particular person's. So, uh, all right, moving on without spoilers, Rebecca writes, hello, masters of horror. I don't know how Mick's going to feel about me being lumped into that. Hello, <laughs> masters of horror. Do you change the way you structure and write a regular screenplay versus a screenplay for an anthology? Is it an entirely different process? What about, what about it, Mick, when you were sitting down to write masters of horror or nightmare cinema? Well, yes there... and no, because once again, my first episode of Masters of Horror that I wrote and directed was Chocolate. It was based on a short story I'd written 12 years before. And th that originally became a spec script that almost got made many times. And I crushed it down into a one hour movie for Masters of Horror because it was a story I'd been wanting to tell for a long time. And I think in some ways it might've been, it might've benefited by its brevity in turning it into one hour. Um, and in the case of Valerie on the Stairs, that was a story that Clive conceived of for Masters of Horror, not a short story first. And it was a very, very uh, detailed treatment that I've just been joking with Clive recently uh, about the fact that if I had put everything into it that he had put into his story idea, we'd still be shooting. <laughs> so, he, he is nothing but filled with brilliant ideas for everything so um in those cases one was intended for masters of horror and the other was going to be a feature film at first and got compacted and in the case of my segment for nightmare cinema which was only 25 minutes um that started out as a one hour Masters of Horror script. And when Masters of Horror did not get picked up, uh, I turned it into a feature film. And then it really went on a diet to become the one of five segments on Nightmare Cinema. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think really truly though, uh, again, like you said, it kind of just depends on the format of the anthology yeah. and, and making sure the story kind of fits those constraints. But I mean, or from a from a ten thousand foot view, I think it's the, the process is still the same. I mean, you're still figuring out, especially with an, an anthology that's a contained narrative. You still need to have a beginning, middle, and end, right? right. You know, like it's right. still a know, lot of anthologies don't. A lot of them will have a single idea, like a short story sure. doesn't necessarily sure. have a beginning, middle, and end. Sure, uh, it the ones that are most feel most complete usually do right, um, but right. yeah in the case of masters of horror there was no introduction there was nothing but self-contained one-hour movies so yeah. they had to feel like movies that gave you as much satisfaction in the yeah. case of nightmare cinema where they ranged from 17 minutes to 25 minutes um, it wouldn't necessarily have to be a complete well-rounded circular tale with a beginning, middle and end. Although they needed to satisfy individually, they linked together. So the experience mm -hmm. was an overall experience of five stories and the wraparounds rather than a self-contained movie that can live and breathe on its own. 
I just got a very nice note from uh, the writer of National Treasure 2 who watched Nightmare Cinema last night and really enjoyed it. So, oh, good. Uh, That's yeah, good to know. Yeah, it's yeah. always nice when uh, your peers uh, validate you. Um, Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> all right. Leo writes, I have a story that I really want to kick off on a dark and stormy night, but fearing the obvious, I removed the storm and just made it a starlit but windy night. Right move or screw it. Just use the storm and embrace the cliche. How do you guys open your screenplays? With the most captivating sequence possible. Introducing yep. a character in a situation that doesn't feel like you've seen it a hundred times before. It doesn't necessarily have to be an action scene, but mm -hmm. something arresting, something that catches you from the beginning. Because if mm -hmm. you don't catch the audience, first in the script writing stage, but secondly, when you're in a theater or on a television, then you've lost the battle. You know, if you can't connect immediately, then give up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, those first couple of pages are so important to hooking whatever reader you have, whether it be, you know, interns, development executives, producers, agents, managers, directors. I mean, so many people have to read your script and sign off on it. It's so important about, um, you know, catching them. And yeah, I mean, starting on a cliche can be a turnoff to a reader. Yeah, you know? on a dark and stormy night, there's how many horror movies start with that anyway, but sure. certainly the word choice you use, but it can just be a dialogue scene, but it's really fascinating dialogue that, yeah. that sucks you into the movie. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think of the social network, you know, that, yeah. that first, I mean, not, ever, not everyone's going to write like Aaron Sorkin, but <laughs> that first 10 minutes is just two people at a bar having a conversation and it's wonderful, you know? It's, it's great. If you can write really great uh, dialogue, you are in such a great position as a screenwriter. Or you do what I do. <laughs> and you, uh, you, I always like to try to hyper-focus in on an object that will catch the reader kind of off guard and then kind of pull out from there. Mm -hmm. uh, like, so for example, uh, in the script that got me signed by my, man my first manager way back when, uh, I, you know, started on the, 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 just a, an individual bulb on a red traffic light. And I pulled back to reveal that that's what we were staring at. Right. Right. Um, right. so it was like, it was red and then it became a grid and then it became a traffic light. And then we pulled out to the street and we see cars driving through it. Uh, so it kind of hooks them in, in a way that they're like, it just grabs their attention immediately. Well, basically know? the whole point is to write something that stands out from the 30 other scripts that the agent yes. is taking home every weekend. Mm -hmm. If you don't captivate them either with the quality of your writing or with the uh, excitement of a scene that, that sets them on edge, then you've lost the war. And all those other scripts, they're going to read. If it used to be, I would read, if I was offered a script, I would always vow to read 30 pages minimum. Sometimes that was torturous. Sometimes it was gleeful. <clears throat> Nowadays, and with agents, I'm sure, it takes far fewer pages yeah. than 30. People say, people say you, have, 10. you have three to 10. Uh, yeah. 
I mean, I remember when you had that conversation with Alejandro on the set of Nightmare Cinema, and you said you said you give scripts thirty pages, and he said I give them five. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, oh my god, I hope Alejandro never reads one of my scripts. And lo and behold, then he then he directed <laughs> He's directing one. you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. But you know, writing counts, grammar counts. We talked about that many times. You know, it seems like mm -hmm. sometimes the AMA turns into a screenwriting seminar. But well, um, you know, <laughs> but but it is it's important if that's the job you want to do, you have to be the guy at the top of the stack at the end of the weekend. It's true. Guy right. or gal. Continuing our uh, screenwriting seminar. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> because I did batch these questions together. Uh, Alex writes, say I sold my first screenplay to an indie producer. Should I try to join the WGA if and when it gets produced? Or would that scare off future indie work? Well, frankly, it's not your choice. You mm -hmm. become a WGA screenwriter when you work for a WGA signatory. Mm -hmm. And then you get one non-union shot. And then you join because you have to be a member to work with a WGA signatory. Yep. So that decides what you do next. You don't choose whether to stay indie. Uh, if it's an indie company and you're not in the WGA, that's the only way you can write for them is by yeah. not being a guild member. Yep. But if it's a guild signatory, then you have to join. And uh, I don't know what it costs these days, aside from your soul. I, it, I, yeah, I, I do, because it was fairly recent. It was uh, $2,500. Um, oh, that's not so much. It's not that much. DGA is much worse. It's like Twelve or fifteen thousand dollars, or something crazy like that. Yeah, there uh, were fifteen hundred and five thousand when I joined both of them. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. No. So so the mixed right. I mean, basically, the way that the Writers Guild, uh, the Writers Guild wants you to join when you're ready to join, and so basically, you have to do a certain amount of paid work for Writer Guild signatory companies, and they basically allocate different types of points towards those works. So like uh, getting option gets you eight points. I think doing a rewrite gets you eight or 16 points. You have to accumulate 24 points, then you can join. If your movie is made by a WGA signatory company, you automatically get 24 points. And then they come for you and they, you know, they come for their $2,500. Well, but there's a, it's really worth it because they, the whole reason there are residuals is because the Writers Guild formed back in the 19 late 30s or early 40s. And they are a union. They protect their members. They work hard for their members. Mm -hmm. And all of those things that we take for granted, like residuals and like minimums and payment schedules that you get paid for a treatment or for uh, just beginning a new project, signing your, your contract, all those things are there to protect writers. And that came at great cost to the early creators of the Writers Guild of America. And I salute them. Originally the Screenwriters Guild, um, but they, they went to, uh, to war to yep. get these things that we now appreciate, the healthcare benefits, the, yeah. uh, you know, uh, pensions. Healthcare, healthcare is really good. Uh. Yeah. Pensions, healthcare, <laughs> minimums, uh, the MDA, the minimum uh, requirements and all are just all because of the Writers Guild. And if you're lucky enough to be a working screenwriter and covered by the Writers Guild, they're a great organization. 
I will throw in one little uh, personal anecdote uh, to kind of address Alex's question. My uh, writing partner tends to be very gun shy when it comes to deal making and, and things of that nature. And I do recall him being very anxious about, oh, if we join the guild now, will that prevent us from selling things later? Um, the reality is if a producer wants the material you've written or they really want you to write something for them, they will form a sub-entity within their company that can be WGA affiliated and they will find a way to work with you. It's, it's, it's not as difficult or as challenging as I think some writers and some indie producers want you to believe it is. Yeah. Uh, well, I was lucky enough to start out on a level that uh, <laughs> my first paying job as a screenwriter, well, was actually for Avco Embassy on something that never got made, a draft of the Philadelphia Experiment before they ever developed ah. it as a real movie. So <laughs> I, that was a non-union gig. But the first thing I was paid by a studio for was uh, Amazing Stories and Universal and Amblin. And they are a Writers Guild shop, all of them. Mm -hmm. And so I was lucky enough to start that way. And I've never been able to write outside of Guild uh, guidelines since. But I've also been protected by the Guild since. And yep. I, 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 I bear the fruit of the, that relationship. Yeah, having done two indies um, you know, outside of the Guild and, and now done two movies within the Guild, uh, I would much prefer to continue to work within the Guild confines. Yeah. So uh, I would say, Alex, if, if you can get your indie producer to do a WGA deal, uh, do so. Um, and you know, when, when you get there, welcome. Uh, so They're there to right. protect you. Absolutely. Charles asks... What creative notes did you glean from working with Steven Spielberg on the screenplay for Batteries Not Included? Now, I know we've talked a little bit about, you know, how he kind of helped you understand length of a feature right. screenplay. But well, beyond that, that well, that was know. the biggest deal. And I, I think that story is worth telling again in that sure. um, here was my first opportunity to write a feature length screenplay for a studio, not only for a studio, but for Steven Spielberg. Um, at the time where nobody was making bigger movies than Steven Spielberg. I've been given an opportunity to adapt one of his stories into a feature with batteries not included. It was so important to me and I put my all into it. And that script was 140 pages long. That's way too long. And it was dense with screen direction, things like that, which no screenwriter should be doing unless he's directing the movie. So what I first heard from him, it took a while before I heard back from him. And so then he said, you know, I, I read your script and Mick, I got to tell you, it took me three sittings to read it. And that's not a good thing. So I was crestfallen. I was crushed. And I also took it to heart and I put it on a diet I took, I, I realized don't do any description, no paragraph longer than five lines long. Keep it brief. Don't tell the director how to direct it. Don't describe shots. Um, keep it brisk, keep it fun, keep it entertaining. Keep people wanting to turn the page. You're not writing the blueprint yet. That's somebody else's job. You are giving the schematic, you're creating the characters 
make the experience of reading a screenplay as brisk and enjoyable and entertaining as watching the movie it's based on. So that was the first big lesson. And when I turned it in, that got the green light for the movie to be made. So, and he was really effusive in, in how well I had adapted to his notes. But the notes were more general in that case because of the length and because it was a stumbling block to him appreciating those other things. One of the, one of the things that was even more beneficial to me as a filmmaker was when I directed my first episode of Amazing Stories, he sat down with me, he had me storyboard the whole half hour episode, sat down with me and went over them with me to see that I knew what I was doing. And he came up with one visual idea that he suggested that, of course, is in the show. Um, but the main thing I learned from him is keep it entertaining, keep it brisk. There weren't really specifics because he liked the characters, he liked the events, he'd created the characters himself, but the way that I'd fleshed them out from, from his bare bones in his story um, was, was something we talked about and, and had fun with. Um, but it wasn't really specific notes more than just the length of it being uh, bone crushing. <laughs> that makes, that makes sense. I mean, and what a, what a, um, I mean, look in the, in the movies, a, a pure delight. So uh, a great lesson learned and, you know, a, a happy ending, so to speak. Well, you really learn too about the, the place the screenwriter has on the ladder. You know, <laughs> sure. You've got sure. producers, directors, studios, actors, um, production designers, cinematographers, composers, all of these people. You're just one piece of a jigsaw puzzle that makes a motion picture. And you can be as important to the process as possible because there is nothing without a script. But mm -hmm. that script needs to please a lot of masters, particularly if you're in the beginning, you're not directing, your only role is as a screenwriter, then you need to bounce off of all these other creative forces and make the movie that everybody wants to make. Yep. No, I completely agree. But speaking of uh, projects that didn't get made, Ryan <laughs> asks, what do you do with your unproduced scripts? Any plans to create an archive or Mick Garris library for researchers and fans to learn from? I don't have that kind of an ego, no. Uh, <laughs> they, they remain, I've got in my garage, I've got a cabinet full of unproduced screenplays. And on my computer, there are plenty of digital, um, uh, digital files of unproduced screenplays. Uh, so, uh, so it goes would kind of be interesting. I, I don't know if ever, anyone's ever done it though. Um, but there's course, always a potential life for something. You don't want to put it true. out there publicly because there, as in the case of my script, Jimmy Miracle, it was an idea I'd had ages ago. I gave it up 30 years later, revived it. And now we've got a deal to pursue. So um, I don't really want to put all of my stuff out there. That's also why I write books and short stories and fiction. That is fiction. Those are words meant to be read by readers right. rather than to become part of the basis for a motion picture or a television show. The language you use in a screenplay is not necessarily the 
bejeweled language you would use for fiction being the, the final medium which is being consumed. There you have it. There will be no uh, Mick Garris compendium. <laughs> <laughs> Not in that regard. Read Not the in books instead. They're out there. Yeah, yeah, there you go. All right. But then they got to read books, Mick. Uh, uh, anyway. <laughs> Digitally or otherwise. Yeah. All right. Jake writes, last month, your fellow master of horror and friend, John Carpenter, said in an interview, uh, he was eager to direct another movie once it was safe to do so. What do you think is the ultimate, ultimate bargaining chip he's been holding out for? Budget? Creative control? Final cut? I could never speak for John Carpenter. You know, uh, <laughs> that's a, a question to pose to him. I know all of those elements are important to him. He's worked in every budget you can imagine, uh, mm -hmm. other than a Marvel budget. Um, yeah. You know, final cut is something important to him. He puts his name on his movies. They are possessory, you know, John Carpenter's Halloween, John Carpenter's Escape from New York. So mm -hmm. Final Cut and creative control is very important to him. And it's what led him to kind of give it all up in frustration before we did the Masters of Horror series together. Yeah. So I could never speak for him, but I'm sure all three of those elements are important to him as he has made it plain, not just to me, but to everybody else in the past. Yeah, I have heard from somebody within the, the John Carpenter camp that one of the things that has prevented it from happening in the last couple of years is, you know, John wants to be able to paint on a, a canvas that will give him those freedoms that Mick is talking about. And unfortunately, because of some of the contractions and the kind of Jason Blum era of horror filmmaking, those budgets are not quite as robust as he once was used to painting with. Uh, so there's there's been a little bit of um, he would like, you know, a certain level of creative freedom and also uh, budget to work with. And the marketplace has just not really given him those those tools that he's been looking for. So I, th I think he's been holding out for the right opportunity is kind of how I've understood it. Yeah, that could be. I mean, they're making $2 million movies and $200 million movies and not much well, in the middle. Yep. Yep. And he was someone who was very used to working in the middle. So yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I can, I can, you know, as much as I would love to see John behind the camera again, I would hate for it to be a situation where he doesn't have the budget to accomplish what he wants to do. And, and he's not happy with it. You know? Well, I was very, very proud to give him a platform with masters of horror that he agreed to do that yep. had very little time and money, but he made the most of them and did two of his most personal productions in decades. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and it was, it was a great, great to see him come back uh, in that, in that fashion. So hopefully it'll happen again. I would on, on that, on that note, um, you know, in the hope of more John Carpenter movies to come, Mick, thank you for another great AMA. Thank you, Joe, and thanks to all the listeners. And if you are enjoying the show, by all means, go to Apple Podcasts or, or Spotify or your favorite podcast app and rate and review the show. We'd love to hear from you. And Joe, let them know how they can be in touch with us for AMA in the future. You can send your questions to PM at Instagram and Twitter, respectively, or you can send them to me at Joe Russo Tweets at Joe Russo Graham, respectively. 
And uh, keep an eye out because we will be putting a call for entries for anniversary AMAs coming up for Sleepwalkers and The Shining. There you got it. So thanks, everybody. Thank you, Mick. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.